my name is Taina Montoya and I am with Jose Patiño. Today we'll be covering the first part of detention, the never-ending cycle. You must be asking why are we talking about detention centers, but as you might know, it's been all over the news, national and international news from local and every, local newspapers, TV stations, and we know that this, unfortunately, is not a new phenomena, but we've been hearing about it for many, many years, and immigrants have been suffering from this. So we're gonna be having a little conversation about where this all began. But before we get started, Jose, can you please describe the audience for those people who haven't been inside of a detention center, or this may be a new terminology for them, how does a detention center look like? How does it sound, feel? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, the detention centers are mostly for immigrants, uh, typically undocumented immigrants, as they have been arrested uh, by local police or ICE, um, and they're waiting trial, um, either to possibly get a bond or ultimately be deported. And typically they are in rural areas, away from the major urban cities. Um, seems like they're done that by intention in terms of like, hey, we want, this is a secret that we're hiding. In our case, most of them are in very isolated desert-like areas. Uh, so when you go out and, and drive to, to a detention center and walk into, you see huge buildings, barbed wired. Uh, it feels something like in the movies, like when you see, when you saw some of those uh, Nazi Germany concentration camps, that's how it feels to me. And as you walk in, uh, you see a lot of families. And so it takes you a little bit back because you see a lot of children. Some of them are babies and some of them are in their teens. And then a lot of the times the children are crying and the parents are trying to calm them down. And the children are crying because they're missing their parents. And as you go inside and you see the, the family being unified for about 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, and as they walk out, you see distraught how the children are going through that. So it's like a lonely place, isolation, anxiety. It just seems like a very dark place when you go in. And for me, it's like, this is what we're doing to the to our families, this is what we're doing to our children. So as we have heard, um, this is a very sad and very unfortunate thing that we have to live with as undocumented immigrants, and that's one of our biggest fears. But I think it's important for the audience to know how this began and why do we have immigration detention centers across our nation. So Jose, can you please tell us a little bit about the story about how did they started um, in, in terms of like the U.S. history? Well, detention facilities began in the 1920s on Ellis Island, uh, and they were designed to house immigrants uh, coming from Europe for sure sure amount of time as they were processed to make sure that people were in health and be able to uh, had no criminal record and all those things uh, and that was mostly like from the 1920s up into the early 1980s that's how the detention centers worked there was just a short uh, place where people were processed for a short amount of time and then they were released um, and what we saw differently in the 80s uh, is that there was this movement, it seemed like, uh, across the nation, and more permanent detention facilities were built. Uh, specifically, the first one was built in 1984 in Texas, and it detained 184 undocumented people. So that was the first one that we actually saw uh, that were designed to detain people for a prolonged period of time. 
When we're talking about people, we're talking about immigrants, correct? People who are coming here either without the proper authorization or they might have been legal permanent residents and then they have uh, probably triggered some of their some of their benefits of being of continuing to have a green card per se. Um, correct? Yes. And then something I think to emphasize what we were talking about is that there was a big shift in the 1980s that before it was like, okay, let's process people the quickest way that we can and then either decide if they're going to stay here in the U.S. or they have to be deported to their place of birth. Um, but then that started shifting in the 1980s. Can you tell us a little bit about more about what does it look like from the 1980s to today? Well, now you have seen, we have currently, according to ICE, they have 250 detention centers across the country. And they have a about a, a detention bed quota of close to 34,000. Uh, so we have seen an infrastructure being built uh, where you have hundreds of detention centers across the country, um, and they're concentrated a lot on in Arizona and California and Texas and New Jersey. And they're, they're designed to house people for prolonged periods of time, uh, sometimes two, three, four years uh, and while people are fighting their case. So it's, it has shifted considerably from a, hey, we're going to come here, we're going to process you, you either stay in the country or you're deported to your native country, to like you're going to stay in this country for years, uh, and then you, we don't know what's going to be the ultimate outcome. Yeah, so as we were talking before, since the 1980s, we, we have seen um, how laws and policies intentionally have been uh, created to target poor and people of color, uh, specifically mandatory minimums, zero tolerance policies, and patrolling low-income communities. So, Reina, what are some of the laws that criminalize immigrants? So, recently, we have to think about President Reagan. Something that many people know, it's about Reagan was really pro-immigrant because he did a law or he passed a law called the so-called amnesty, also known as IRCA or IRCA, which many people think about, yeah, it provided a pathway to citizenship for close to 2 million people who were unauthorized in the U.S. But another thing that IRCA did was also criminalize people who were working without papers. After 1996, we started seeing undocumented people being criminalized just because they didn't have the right paperwork to work. So before, it used to be um, just a civil crime, and then it started shifting into being criminalized. Also, during the Clinton presidency, there was another big law that has really impacted why are people currently behind detention centers for a very prolonged time. As Jose was mentioning in the last segment, we have seen before the 1980s how it was just for a period of time, it was a quick a quick process, and now we have seen it delayed and delayed. So President Clinton, in 1996, he passed the Illegal Immigrant Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. If you were in one of our last episodes, we talked about it in terms of education and allowing the states to decide whether they were going to give institution or not. So then it also impacted the amount of time that people were able to be inside of the detention. So something that they were subject to was mandatory detention, especially if they have crossed 
across the men deported previously, you would see that you would see that trend that someone who came to the U.S. was deported and then they wanted to come back to either be reunited with their family or being able to escape from violence or for economic reasons, that person would typically get processed and then they could and they would be deported. Now people have mandatory times according to how many times they have been deported that they have to serve inside of a detention facility. Also, through 1996, we started seeing the expansion of 287G agreements that it's pretty much the polymigra, what we call it in the community, or the contact between, the collaboration between police and ICE to ensure it would be easier for the police to capture undocumented immigrants and then turn them into ICE so then they can then turn them into detention centers. Another thing that happened during now the Bush administration, it was that Congress pretty much enacted an immigration quota. The first time that we heard about it, it was about 18,000 beds that that pretty much detention facilities were required to fill with people. So uh, as you can think about it, I want you to imagine if you have 80,000 beds, that's the minimum that, you're, that you have a, of capacity to actually fill them. So then... That was back, as I said, in Bush administration years in 2004. And guess what? The next presidency during the Obama administration, they increased that bed quota to 34,000 people. So I want you to let that sink in, 34,000 people. And now we're seeing this, that it has become even worse and worse throughout the years. And we have a Trump administration has been really open about how much he dislikes undocumented immigrants and has really expanded a really bad narrative. But on top of that, they want to make sure that the laws continue to increase and criminalize undocumented people. And they want to expand the bed quota from 34,000 people to 52,000 people. That's an increase of almost 18,000 detention beds. This would mean 12 additional, additional Eloy detention centers across the nation. For those of you who do not know, Eloy Detention Center is one of the biggest in the nation and is here in Arizona. And Jose is going to be telling us a little bit more about Eloy, but I want you to really think about that. Imagine if we would have one of the largest detention centers multiplied by 12. What is the capacity that is going to add to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to deport and detain more people? So we've been hearing about how detention centers began throughout the history timeline. We also talked a little bit about Congress really enabling ICE and giving them the tools to ensure that they had more people in detention. But let's talk about Jose about the why. Why are they doing this? Is there an incentive? Are undocumented people just criminals and are committing larger crime? Do we have a lot of waves of undocumented people coming after the amnesty of 1986? Can you please break it down for us of why this is happening? Well, uh, I think for us we need to think about marketing and economics. Um, when we talk about privately owned businesses, the number one responsibility is to make money. And if they're like CoreCivic and Geo Group, which are privately trade uh, organizations, uh, corporations on the on the stock exchange, they have shareholders and they want to increase the profit. So they have an incentive to make more money. And how do they make more money? Is to make sure that at all times they have their facilities 
uh, at capacity, and that's what they their incentive is that. Additionally, on the other side, it's, Jose, it provides me... a deterrent. I have a question, Jose. I have a question. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm not trying to be rude. But uh, you talked about these private companies. Are you telling me the detention centers are not owned by the government, like prisons are? Can you please? You talked about these core civic, I think, and geo groups. Can you explain a little more? Yes. Yeah, so even now, uh, most uh, correction facilities are owned privately, uh, even at people who are citizens or uh, green card holders. So we have seen that there has been through the 80s uh, with this laws, also the more and more it's become privatized and they have an incentive to make money. Uh, at the end of the day, we live in a capitalist society and the number one goal for these companies are to make money. And they don't see people as humans, they see it's just as a bank account. Um, and we have seen that they have worked a lot here in Arizona and other states uh, with the governors and the legislature to keep building or getting contracts for private prisons. Um, and then the other side that we need to think about on a theological sense is that very intimate groups see this as a deterrent. Uh, they see that if we house your family member, your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your children for a long amount of times in a jail and dehumanize them as animals, you are more likely to either leave the country or or hide in the shadows. So the, the, this is a two-way. It's one to make money also to dehumanize immigrants and deter people from coming into the country. So I want to learn a little bit more about these private detention centers and who owns them. I know you mentioned some groups. I think it's really important to understand that these companies, as you said, are privately owned. So can you tell us a little bit about who are these groups and like why is Congress agreeing with them if this is really not helping lowering crimes and is actually impacting real people? Yeah, well, GEO Group and Core Civic uh, were actually funded by both a Democrat and a Republican. Um, so, and they were funded in the 80s. Um, so they have ties to both parties. And as we know now, um, they're probably spe special interest. And they also are tied with ALEC, which is a large um, coalition of multiple corporations. And their whole goal is to lobby uh, senators and representatives to pass laws that help them, in this case, make money. Uh, so while we know that immigrants commit less crime by far any group, their overall economic contribution, and we know that specifically most of the American people support immigrants coming into the country, it's that these loose are very good at lobbying uh, our elected leaders into passing laws and legislations uh, that make it harder for immigrants to live in the country. So for example, from 1998 to 2017, this lobby group spent $42.5 million on local elections, national elections, um, 1.5 going to Democrats and $4.5 million going to Republicans. So they see they play both, uh, both fields. So they have given $1.5 million to Democratic or Democrats and $4.5 million contributions to Republicans. Wow, that's, yeah. in that's incredible. Yeah, and I think the most notable Democrat is Chuck Schumer. He's the one who receives the most of money. He's the leader in the Senate. Uh, and we have also seen that also people like Bob Menendez, which is a, a immigration champion in the Senate, has received money from this lobby group. So then definitely the interest is completely 
based on like, do they listen to what it's right and what is going to help people or are they going to listen to the money? And well, we know that story of America, but I would love to let dive a little deeper, Jose, into going into one of the detention centers so people can really visualize how money and profit is really tied to to the harm that it's done to undocumented immigrants. So tell us a little about, about this little town in Arizona called Eloy. So can you describe Eloy, like who lives there, where is it, and who is the largest employer of that little town? Yeah, well, the Eloy um, is a small agricultural town. Uh, initially, from its beginnings in the early 1900s up until 1990s, the predominantly the economy was just farming, um, and it was cotton was the major major crop. And where is it located? It's located in southeast Arizona and the desert, um, right off. It's really close to the mountains. It's very isolated. It's about an hour and a half from Phoenix, an hour, right? Yeah, from the major uh, cities, about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And Eloy is famous because it has four correctional centers, um, wow. uh, and then it has. The Eloy Detention Center, uh, and it provides close to sixteen hundred jobs for the city of Eloy. Uh, CoreCivic is the largest employer in the town, and Eloy Detention Center uh, can house and up to fifteen hundred immigrants. Um, so, just off of that, uh, we know that it takes a major investment to build a, a facility like this, millions of dollars, and once they're built. Uh, Core Civic is gonna make sure that they get that the return of investment. So once they're built, they're not gonna be teared down within five years. It's gonna take a while because of the influence that they have within that city. Now, that city depends solely on Core Civic and Geo Group to sustain itself. Uh, it, it it dwarfs the other major employers. The other major employers are McDonald's, a local elementary school, and gas stations. So people, that town is sustained by by having human beings detained uh, as specifically immigrants. Uh, so the other thing that is notable, uh, Eloy is notable, is that 15 people have died in that detention center since it started. So it has been sued multiple times for human abuse policies, and it yet it continues again because it's the lifeline of that town. And uh, across the nation, most little towns who host detention facilities, those detention facilities provide the economic support and are the lifeline of that town. So even if people who live at Eloy are probably against this, that means that they would be against having a job and being able to bring their food to the table. So we see the the so-called non-ending cycle of detention centers and being being strategically put in places where people have to depend on this in order to live and make a living. And I think it's so important to also highlight the fact that that this is something that hasn't existed for for many, many years, but it's a recent phenomenon starting in the 1980s. And I think another thing to highlight about what you said, Jose, that is so eye-opening is understanding that private facilities don't have the same, they don't have to be as hold accountable the same as other prison systems that are owned by the government, correct? Correct. They have less educational programs. Uh, most of them don't have education in terms of like, hey, pursue your GED or a college degree. Um, they don't allow 
they they have lower quality they have less standards overall mm -hmm. so people who are housed in detention centers have less quality of life than people who are housed in in traditional jails and prisons i hope today you have been able to be introduced into why do we have detention centers what is the history of it the incentive of the u.s government using detention centers not only as a deterrent strategy but to really be able to profit from having undocumented immigrants asking for asylum or having pending asylum claims to to really criminalize the mere fact of migrating instead of finding solutions at the congressional level to make sure that immigrants are not risking their lives in the border and they have a process where they can do it the right way and then they can be legal. If you would have ever talked to an undocumented immigrant, nobody would have the heart to risk their lives or the lives of their children crossing 120 degree weather or being able to be exposed to rape and horrible crimes if they didn't have to, of their conditions in their native land weren't as awful. So thank you for tuning in today. I know it probably was a very heavy episode. This it was just part one. We are encouraging you to tune in to our next podcast and our next episode. We're going to have part two. We're going to be having a guest speaker that has lived experience in one of the detention facilities. And we're also going to be discussing the humanitarian crisis at the border with the children that are being literally ripped away from their parents when this is something that we can prevent. So... We're encouraging you to tune in um, next time and we'll be here, Jose and I, with another guest. We're also asking you to do two things. If you thought that this information was helpful and it brought a deeper understanding to you, we're asking you to educate your friends and your family about what is going on. It is important now more than ever that we know exactly how detention centers benefit from having undocumented people behind bars for, for an indefinite period of time. We're also asking you to join our text alert by just texting the word ART HEALS. It's one word, A-R-T HEALS, H-E-A-L-S, to the number 33222. Once again, the number is 3322. Make sure that if it autocorrects that you just have one word. So then you can get the latest updates about what is going on at the border, what is going on with immigration, and we can give you clear steps on how you can take action to join us and to make sure that we take a stand in these very difficult moments. So I want to thank Jose for, for giving us a lot of information on this and for really engaging in this really tough dialogue. Yeah, and one last thing. I think a lot of us always who feel called to do something Uh, we're like, hey, let's change the laws, let's change the policies. But I think the most important crucial, and crucial thing that we can do is talk to our friends, our family members, and educate them on what's happening. Because the reason that we have this system is because so many good people have been stay, have stayed silent, have been quiet. And if we do that, uh, slowly but surely, we will win and we will turn the tide. Uh, but if we don't, then we're going to keep being in this cycle. Thank you. We'll see you until next time. I hope you're having a good day and make sure you take care of yourself and you take a lot of deep breaths because I know that this is challenging moments. Mm -hmm.